Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today my guest is author and historian Dr. Margaret Weidekamp. Margaret is chair of the Space History Department at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum, where she curates the social and cultural history of spaceflight collection, encompassing some 5,000 pieces of space memorabilia and science fiction objects. She is also the author of Right Stuff, Wrong Sex, America's first women in space program. I was fascinated with the idea of chatting with a space historian, and I knew Margaret would be a great choice. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Margaret, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. Thank you, Ken. Delighted to be here. Oh, it's a real honour to have you. I've always been um, fascinated by the history of space travel. It comes back when I was a kid and I used to watch all of the early kind of movies that were made in the 1960s rather than the 50s because in the 50s it was a little bit fantastic you know they had all kind of strange technologies that they assumed we were going to have 10 or 15 years later but I liked watching movies like 2001 and maybe later ones like even tv shows like space 1999 because although the stories were fantastic their take on technology and how they may have perceived it going forward over the next 20 to 30 years it wasn't that far off the mark in some ways and I also like the way they used current issues that they had developed and known about and incorporated them into movies so you know we all love our Star Wars and we all love our Star Trek but there's nothing more satisfying for me than seeing somebody floating through a spacecraft rather than just walking normally (laughs) so um, you know history uh, the history of space travel has fascinated me because it's probably one of the main kind of pop culture and parts of our culture and parts of our society that has a vel- relatively young history and it kind of started from nowhere. You know, it's not as if we kind of had, mm-hmm. you know, the history of warfare, for example, that's throughout all of our, you know, our span on this planet and say the history of politics even goes far as back as you could, you could argue ancient Greece. But when it comes to space travel and the space industry and, and you know, working and living in space, it's relatively new, isn't it? It really is. Um, And I think in some very interesting ways, it can be both very universal, very global and very culturally specific. Um, So I was really interested. I've been reading colleagues who've been writing about the way that spaceflight was imagined in a Russian Soviet context uh, or in a European context. Um, And so my work really started looking in new ways at how um, Americans had imagined what spaceflight might be. And I just saw a lot of connections, especially through my work as a curator at the National Air and Space Museum, between how spaceflight had been imagined and how then it had actually been executed, and then how those ideas had been exported and then reflected back in all kinds of interesting ways. So I think those conversations are fascinating. Yeah, they are indeed. And being based here in Ireland, we are in a kind of unique position, more so than say, the last 30 or 40 years of people on mainland Europe, because we do have a lot of American TV that's come into our channels because primarily our language is English. So that's a huge benefit. Back in the 1960s and 70s, we didn't have the technologies for automatic, uh, you know, subtitles and so on. So we used to get a lot of American TV well before anybody in Europe would get it. And of course, a lot of that incorporated um, science fiction 
And as I said, we, we were kind of a little bit, we're sorry, we're heavily influenced by that when it comes to it. So when we think of space travel here in Ireland, I think we generally think of US space travel. And even today, you know, we kind of follow that side of it rather than ESA or the Russian space industry as well. And I, I think, yeah, I think I would agree with you. It's, it's, there's a pop culture around it as well that we've kind of embraced for a long time. And I love the ways that um, when you talk to people who are actually doing the exploring, who are building the vehicles and testing them and who are a part of these programs, they're a part of that culture also, right? They grew up as uh, fans of space science fiction or watching 2001 A Space Odyssey and some of that speculative fiction that was really trying to be very science-based, very realistic in what the imagining was going to be. And some of those visions were also what got them excited and propelled them uh, in some ways to where they became interested in making the real thing happen. And I was speaking to Matt Kaplan in a previous um, episode of this podcast. Matt was, of course, the uh, the cheerleader for the um, the Planetary Society with that long running radio show. We talked about the the pop culture surrounding the the, the idea of NASA. For example, uh, here you'd go. I live in rural Ireland, and you will probably in the next day or two spot a kid going around with the old style NASA T-shirt. Now these are quite young; they might be four or five, but they will not. They know what NASA is, you know, because it's just mm-hmm. something that's kind of exciting, isn't it? It's not like say the other branches of military or navy. You know, there's a certain you know concept about kids wearing that, of course. But for NASA, it's got this clean cut image that is really accessible to everybody and it looks really cool. It does. And that NASA brand, if you will, that has become something that's really become popular in fashion and, you know, bags and all kinds of things. Uh, and that NASA, I think, has really done a very good job. They, as a government agency, they don't license that, but they control that and you have to apply in order to use it. But they've put out uh, tens of thousands of authorizations to create those kinds of products. And I think it has gotten NASA very much in the public imagination in a global way that it it seems very now, but also very futuristic. Yeah, I agree. It's really got to jump on even some of the privateers who are involved in space industry now. Uh, you know, if you think about them, you would be thinking of them, say, maybe in the same way that you have Pontiac or Chevrolet or, you know, Ferrari. And of course, we all know there's pop cultures around those sort of things, but they just have still got a long way to go before they would uh, get the jump on the NASA logo, you know. I'm asking, I wanted to ask you and um, start off maybe about yourself and, and what inspired you uh, to do what you do, because pursuing a career in the field of space history, I'm sure it was very unique. And I'm just wondering where you came to that. So this is not where I expected that I would be. I started my career in graduate school as an historian. I was interested in women's history. And I found out about and started researching a women's astronaut testing project from the late 1950s and early 1960s. And I had a chance to do a year at the NASA headquarters history office in their archives as a part of that research. And I really thought this would be a good year of research and get me that piece done in the women's history that I was interested in, but it really connected to a kind of longstanding interest that I had in spaceflight and in space science fiction as a fan. I grew up as a Star Wars kid uh, in the 70s and 80s and um, became a Star Trek fan as an adult. 
but I didn't think that would be anything I would be doing as a professional. Uh, but I just saw so many connections even then between the way that spaceflight had been imagined and the way that it had actually been realized and executed. And so when I came back to grad school, I started teaching a class on space space history and science fiction and kind of exploring those with students. And as a result, uh, I got connected to the National Air and Space Museum. I had met the people in that department in space history when I was in Washington, D.C., and was just intrigued by the idea of being able to show it, not tell it, not only to write the books with the footnotes based on the documents, but also to be working with toys and games and memorabilia, pins and patches and all kinds of uh, material things, and then being able to tell that story to the public through exhibits as well as through my own scholarship. So I had the opportunity to come to the Smithsonian as the first curator for what we call the Social and Cultural History of Spaceflight Collection. And uh, I've been doing that since 2004. And it's over 5,000 artifacts, if I'm correct. It is, but you have to understand that many of those are tiny, tiny things. So I have colleagues who are responsible for a Saturn V rocket, 363 feet long. You have to build a building over it in order to restore it. I can put dozens and dozens of things into a small archival storage box if I need to. So, uh, and when you're cataloging something in a museum, a set of trading cards, every card gets its individual number. Um, So it is impressive and also needs to be understood in a little bit of context. And the context, I'm sure it, it's quite exciting um, for people who maybe kind of are fascinated by science fiction and fascinated by space, but not so interested in the technology side of it. So this is where a kind of um, this kind of display and exhibition would come in for them, wouldn't it? That would be where you can draw them in without being too technical. I think it is. It's, I think of it as the most kind of small D democratic collection. This is the kind of stuff that any person could have. Very few people are going to build and test and actually fly a spacecraft. But many people have watched a show or watched a launch or visited a launch site or visited a place and gotten a mission patch and so or heard an astronaut speak at their school. And that kind of connection in material things, whether it's a coffee mug or a bumper sticker or a T-shirt or a mission patch, is the kind of thing that lots of ordinary people have as some connection to uh, an excitement about spaceflight. And I love being able to tell that side of the story in the context of the real spacecraft, the spacesuits, the things that actually made this this history. Uh, can we chat about some of the most interesting, unique objects in the uh, museum collection? Do you have any that are your kind of favorites? So I have a number of favorites, um, some big, some small. So I am the responsible curator for the 11-foot studio model of the Star Trek Starship Enterprise. Wow. So <laughs> back in the day before computer-generated imaging, you know, if you wanted a spaceship in your TV show or movie, you had to physically build one and then film it on film and composite it into the rest of what you were putting together. And um, so that is what this is. It's from the original 1960s television series. Uh, It's made largely of wood. We did a massive restoration project on that um, starting in about 2014. The real work was in 2015. And so I've spent a lot of time with that model. And part of what I like about having that on display at the museum is I think there are ways, especially for those who are fans, when they encounter it, that's a real 1960s television star, um, not just 
a prop. So the Enterprise is a favorite. Um, I just uh, wrote a short article about a bracelet that we have that was owned by a woman whose husband was an engineer with McDonnell Aviation um, that did the work on the Mercury and Gemini spacecraft, the early human spaceflight. And he would bring her a charm for her charm bracelet uh, when he finished a project. And so it was a nice recognition of their partnership uh, and the way that she was supporting him in his work. But the other thing that's on this bracelet is a couple of charms from the schools where she taught, which were Cape View Elementary. So the whole family relocated to Cape Canaveral, as thousands of families did in order to support this work. And those communities needed schools and grocery stores and, you know, community theaters and churches and all of the things that make life worth living. And um, that create a community where then people are doing good and important work. So I like that bracelet as a way of telling that story of that larger community that really was necessary to support this space work. Um, and it, it was kind of uh, encapsulated into one piece, this gift from a husband to a wife. Yeah, that sounds really great because, you know, it's very easy to pick the one things that are well known. But when you get down to the kind of the personalized artifacts they really really impact on the everyday lives that these people lived and then it was you know a symbol of the if you can tell a small story it sometimes tells the big story um and so it's one thing to give the statistics about brevard county florida and how many people moved in and how much population explosion there was in the 1960s as the human spaceflight program was really getting going but i like the ability to personalize it with that family. Um, so that was uh, Bob Foster and his wife, Tony Foster, and um, their daughter, uh, Sarah Foster Chang, brought that to the museum um, almost 20 years ago now. So uh, we have it on display in our new Destination Moon exhibit that uh, tells the larger story of how human beings got to the moon. Can I ask you the process there, actually, because I was just wondering about how many uh, artifacts are the property of the museum and then how many are donated. Is there a process that somebody would go through if they wanted to don donate something? Yes, very much so. So you can uh, send an email to the museum's website and it will make its way to a curator. And then we would start a conversation uh, with you about uh, the appropriateness of it, whether the object was something that we already have in the collection or whether it's something that we would be interested in. The curator's job is to say no far often than we get to say yes, because if we bring an object into the collection, we're really in the forever business and we are committing Smithsonian's resources to preserve that artifact for the American people and the world for generations. So we have to be very choosy about what we bring in. Um, we also have colleagues who are working actively with aerospace companies who are working actively with NASA. So some of those things are donations or transfers um, that come through established connections. Often for popular culture objects, it is uh, those kind of one-on-one -on -one interactions with someone who might be a collector or someone who might be a family member of someone who participated in the space program. Um, and all kinds of things come over the transom. And the trick is to try to sort out and think about what are the richest objects that are going to tell multiple stories and that would be useful not only for exhibit, but also as a research piece that if uh, someone wanted to come and see this, we are really, in addition to being a museum, uh, as everybody thinks of it in terms of the exhibits and a public site, 
we're an object library. And the idea is that generations from now, when people want to know the history of aviation and spaceflight, we should have saved the right things that will tell that story in a material way that people will be able to reference. And so I'm always thinking about what are the multiple stories that that an object can tell that allows us to build not only the exhibit potential, but also that research capacity. Yeah, it's you're making some really excellent points there. And while you were talking, I was thinking about something in that having this type of museum is so important because we tend to lose a lot of important artifacts, don't we? Because once they go up, they never come back. Yes. And on the spaceflight side of the house, uh, we think a lot about how we tell those stories with things that are real, that may or may not be the flown piece. Um, So it's a rare and wonderful thing to have something go into space and come back. It needs to be very carefully planned to come back, to have a heat shield, to have a recovery mechanism to get it back. But something like the Apollo program, that Saturn V launch vehicle, that rocket that blasted that off, that's 363 feet tall. Um, and what we get back from that is the command module um, and what fits in that. And that would fit in my living room, which is not that big of a living room. <laughs> and um, so we're then thinking about what are all the ways that we can show what happened in space without um sometimes having access to the real thing and what's valuable about that is what where we are able to do it is you don't just build one thing and blast it into space right you don't just build one thing and launch it so there are engineering models there are flight spares very often for spacecraft planetary spacecraft for instance they build more than one one goes to the planet one stays on earth and then people are using that for scientific testing and to uh keep track of things and solve problems as the missions are going. And then when those uh, are able to come to the museum, we have a real Mars rover, for instance. It's not the one on Mars. I think most people, though, would who are interested in space know that. Because, like, you look at the recent movie, The Martian, Ridley Scott's movie, where he had a rover. He was using parts or he was using a rover to communicate. Yes. And then they had an original um clone of the, of that one in the in one of the warehouses which they had to set up and get working again so when you have these artifacts and they're in your collection these are genuine working models aren't they they're not just clay models or wood models yes and we sometimes have um developmental models as well to be able to tell the story of how a technology developed So um, we bring in lots of different kinds of things, pieces of things, whole vehicles when we can, uh, components when we can, and it's always run through that decision process of what stories will this allow us to tell, uh, what will it allow people to learn when they encounter the actual object, and whether that's as a professional researcher or as a visitor coming through our doors at some point in the summer. There's a question I was wondering about um, that I was going to ask you. It involves, say, balancing the preservation of historic artefacts and then with the need to make them accessible, engaging to visitors. Do you, do you have a, a process in that, in that respect? Do you, do, you see, do you say to yourself, OK, this is far too important to have people so close to or is everything you, know, you have in the collection at one point or another accessible? No, that's an excellent question. And that is the question for museum work is the fact that when you put things out on display, you are inherently exposing it to vibration, to light, to all kinds of things that can be over time 
uh, damaging to the artifact, not the least of which just as careful as we can be to move things, stuff gets rubbed or bumped when it gets moved. Um, and so you really need to think about also long-term what the stresses are on an object from being on a stand or even sitting on its wheels or suspended. So we think a lot about that. Most of the collection is not on display at any one time, in part because we have such a large collection as a whole as the National Air and Space Museum, that that's more than we would be able to put on display, but it's also by design so that we are balancing how long we put things on display. We have a whole department um, of conservators, museum conservators, who are scientists who specialize in art and materials and who can tell me about paints and plastics and metals and the interactions of degrading of plastic uh, and who will make very specific recommendations when we're making decisions about putting things on exhibit about light levels or um, other ways that they really want the humidity and temperature controlled around an object. So we think a lot about how we protect the objects so that putting them on display does minimal damage, minimizes any damage that would be done. And we're really balancing the preservation of the collection with uh, putting it out for exhibit. Again, you, you can sometimes think that if you have a, um, a museum that everything should be open and accessible to people. But the, re you know, the vast majority of museums around the world, the massive collection that they have, like usually only 10, 20 percent is on display. And, uh, you know, I guess it's a, it's a way of that you would have to communicate that to visitors and say, look, it's impossible for the reasons that you just mentioned there. Uh, because, you know, people sometimes get disappointed. You know, I can tell you a small story. I went to, um, I'm a big car fan and I went to the Audi Museum in uh, Germany and I was so keen to see this particular coupe, which was kind of a, a prototype thing. And it wasn't there. And I said to the guy, oh, I'm after coming from all the way from Ireland to see it. And he said, well, you know, he said it's, it's quite rare. So we, we can only have it out every now and again. And I was kind of going, okay, that makes sense. You know, so I suppose that's what you, yes. it's all about communication, isn't it? Yes. And communication also in the stories that we can tell. We have so many different stories that we could put on the floor. Um, I'll tell the brief story of the development of Destination Moon. I was in some of those early meetings when we were talking about what should the new gallery about human spaceflight from the beginnings of the space age through the Apollo program and kind of up to pointing out towards what's going to be going back to the moon. And there were a half a dozen of us around the table, and each of us had a different idea of how we would want to tell that story, what we might want to focus on, whether we would focus on the workers and how it was all built, or whether we would focus on the technological problems that had to be solved in order to get it done, or whether we focus on the humanness of the people who are going and what it takes to then protect that on this trip to the moon, or, or the lunar science that's going to be learned. And honestly, any one of those through lines, any one of those stories would have made a really compelling exhibit. And part of what takes so long in exhibit development is the curators kind of sitting and arguing with each other over trying to find that one coherent story, which is often a blend of multiple of those approaches that I just discussed. And then how do you show it? Don't tell it, right? How do you put the best objects out there um, and create exhibits that people go in and they encounter the real thing and ask some questions of it in a way that they then discover it and really remember it. We know that the most authoritative, long, detailed labels 
people will come out of that exhibit and they will have a general impression that the folks who wrote this seem very smart, but they may not remember any of the facts that were actually presented to them. So we're trying to bring the visitor into that encounter with the object in a way that you're saying, notice this window, it does this thing. It was shaped this way for a reason. Um, They were able to make the windows smaller, for instance, on the lunar lander, make them triangular by the, and then remove the seats that removed a lot of weight. They had the astronauts standing and they could then have these smaller, more easily engineered lighter windows than having giant uh, panes of thick, thick glass to protect them. So if we can show people that that's something that they might remember, and that's also where you then are doing a lot of the pairing out of if we're going to choose these stories to tell then these are the objects that are the richest ones that will tell those stories. And then that means some other things stay in storage. I'm thinking as you're talking about that, and I'm wondering, um, you know, for, for future exhibitions, which you're thinking about, obviously you're going to have to uh, look at a point maybe a couple of years from now where you will have almost a separate section for space industry. Because, you know, they're breaking a lot of records. They're making new ground with some of the privateers. And surely that although it's kind of privateer, it's it's still part of space history, isn't it? It's very much so. And uh, in space history, we are talking in the community a lot about how those are really changing relationships with corporations, not necessarily new relationships. So, you know, when we're talking about the Mercury or Gemini uh, human spaceflight programs, those were vehicles that were being created by McDonnell. We, we had North American Aviation that was working with uh, NASA on the creation of the Uh, command modules for the Apollo program or something like Grumman that was building the lunar landers. So it's not the first time that we have companies working with NASA, but NASA around 2008 self-consciously restructured how they wanted to work with corporations. And instead of asking businesses and saying, here's exactly what we want to have built and bid to build it, they said, this is the capacity we want to have. These are the things we want to be able to do go crazy, tell us, you know, build us something that would do that, show us that you can do that, and then we'll figure out um, about using it. And so that's part of what a company like SpaceX has done uh, in developing the cargo and then crew Dragon um, capsules, those space vehicles. And um, so, yes, we're looking a lot at that. And we know that our visitors, when they come in the doors, have a lot of questions about how that all works. How new is this? How much is that just a kind of turn of the prism from what's been done since the 1960s? And so that is something that we are self-consciously thinking about. How do we collect around that? And how do we interpret those stories so that people, our visitors, can get a better understanding of what they're seeing on the news? With regards to the exhibitions, do you, have you considered doing more online? Would that be something that you could look at? Because that might, you know, that would address some of the issues we raised there about preservation of artifacts and also displaying more artifacts. So is that a policy that Smithsonian is looking at to increase or de- even decrease? Explicitly, very much so. Um, so there's a couple of ways that we're doing that. The Smithsonian as an institution uh, and the National Air and Space Museum is one of 20 plus museums that are a part of that larger research organization. Uh, explicitly is looking to to reach a billion people. And that's going to mean um, doing things online and doing things in multiple languages in order to get information out as a really global endeavor. And then the National Air and Space Museum is in the middle of a reconstruction project on our building on the National Mall. 
which opened in 1976 as a bicentennial present to the country. And so we are heading towards the um, Sesqua Bicentennial, the 250th anniversary of uh, the U.S. uh, and the 50th anniversary of that building. And we are in the middle of rebuilding all of the galleries in that building as the building itself is being rebuilt uh, up to 21st century standards. And an explicit part of that is thinking about what in shorthand we call beyond the walls, right? So we have the exhibits that we're physically building in the space. And then what are all of the things that we're putting on the website? And we've had an ongoing project to bring our records up to date. So with good photography, with clear explanations of what the objects are so that you can go to the National Air and Space Museum's renovated website and really dig into the collection and get some sense of the richness of the objects that are there. As you're talking, I'm just listening to you and I'm just uh, scrolling through the, the website. It's absolutely amazing. I was just looking at the picture that you have where the overhead view of the gallery, the design of the building is incredible because it just brings so much light into the exhibitions and you know you've a lot of chrome there and a lot of stainless steel inside (laughs) and it just looks sensational so all credit to the people who were behind that thank you and we're working hard on the light because as much as a light and airy exhibit looks very nice it's bad for objects and so one of the major projects that was done um, is really doing a lot of light amelioration in that so that we still have the look of all that glass without actually the damaging sunlight coming in and uh, and being hard on the objects and this is one of the places where the museum field as a whole has really moved in the last 50 years to thinking in new ways new scientifically based ways about how we work to preserve objects and um really um limiting light exposure is one of the things so thank you for the compliments and we're working very hard to preserve the wonderful architecture of the space the setting of the objects but also really increasing our protection based on what we've learned over the last 50 years. Yeah, it's amazing. Does it ever travel, Margaret? Do you ever go to other countries with some of the um, exhibits? So the curators travel a lot um, and it's much easier to travel our people than it is to travel our objects. We do have objects on loan all around the world. And so the museum is actively a part of uh, supporting a loan project that um, will work with museums around the world on um figuring out what we can loan. We've had an Apollo command module has been in the Museum of Science London uh, for decades. So we have things that have been around the world. And then we have our Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service, and they specifically put exhibits together about science, about art, about history that um, are available to museums around the world. Just a final question on the subject. I wanted to ask you, do you have... um exhibits from, say, the Russian Space Agency or ESA? Yes, we are interested in, and we've always told international stories. We've never tried to just tell uh, American U.S. stories. And so, yes, we have uh, examples of Soyuz. We have examples um, where we're of the ways that there have been uh, collaborations with uh, JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, as well as um, we just brought a model in of the Nuri launch vehicle, which is the Republic of Korea has developed their own 
um, internally developed launch vehicle that uh, has been launched successfully a few times now. So we literally just brought a 1 to 15 model of the uh, Nuri launch vehicle in and have that on display at our Stephen F. Udvarhazy Center, which is our second center out by Dulles Airport. So we have the benefit of having both the building on the National Mall that allows us to do really integrated exhibits that have that rich storytelling. And then we have our display storage uh, hangers out by Dulles Airport that is uh, its own museum. We are one museum with two sites. And that second site allows us to put um, lots of different large things on exhibit. So the uh, flown space shuttle orbiter discovery is there, as well as an SR-71, as well as a Concorde, um, the Enola Gay um, bomber for the Second World War is there. So a large objects, military aircraft, um, actual launch vehicles, we can put on display in that um, bigger site. And so, yes, we have that as a place where we are explicitly showing off a collection that is U.S. focused, but is international and has been for decades. Wonderful. I know you said there that you've got some of the areas are being cordoned off there, you know, they're being redesigned. So is there any um, up and coming projects or exhibitions that uh, are going to happen? Oh, quite, quite a few. So we just opened eight brand new galleries um, this past October. When they started the renovation project, when we realized that we were going to need to rebuild that building on the National Mall uh, to bring it up to 21st century standards to improve the conditions for the objects and for the visitors, one of the things they did is they came to the curators and said, listen, if you're going to have to evacuate all of the exhibits, take everything out and then put it all back would you do it the same way again? And the answer, of course, if we're any good at our jobs is no, we have all kinds of new stories we want to tell. We have new things we have brought into the collection that we'd like to collect, that we've been waiting for a space to do. So we've set ourselves this project now where we're doing 20 plus galleries at a time. So we've just finished eight of them. Those are brand new um, and all on display and open to the public in the building on the National Mall. I will say, uh, if you're coming to see us, make sure you get your uh, free timed ticket so that you can um, have a good experience going through. It's no longer just open to the public. Go to our website and you can get a free timed ticket to come through because um, we want to make sure that um, we can make sure that you have a, a good experience with that. But then we have another... 11 galleries that are coming and uh, the beginning, the middle section, which is our big milestones of flight hall or Boeing milestones of flight hall that will be reopening in uh, late 2024. And then 2025, 2026, we're going to be reopening the second half of the building, which will have our kind of military aviation suites about the First World War, Second World War, modern military aviation. We have a gallery about the pioneers of flight, which is about flight in the 1920s. We have a gallery called Discovering Our Universe that is a science-based gallery about the current state of astronomy and how we know what we know uh, about the universe and the galaxies beyond. So we've got some really exciting stuff coming in terms of space flight. We've got our large hall on living in the space age, the Raytheon living in the space age hall, which really looks with a kind of present-centered view of we live in an, on a planet that's surrounded by satellites and that space age and other parts of space technologies touch your life absolutely every day, no matter where on this planet you live. And how can we start to unpack that for you and show that to you and let you understand that as a space story? Because I don't think people 
recognize it as that anymore. Um, and then we've got uh, at home in space, which is really looking at the um, International Space Station and what's coming for future human spaceflight, what's being done right now. So we've got some very exciting things going, and those teams have been working literally for years already, and we're going to be working for a couple of years more um, to bring all of that to the public. That That's colossal, Margaret. That's just incredible. <laughs> I know, it's just amazing. It's a like, wonderful opportunity, and it is a lot. We are ta- we've taken on a lot. I don't know how you'd even get some a chance to eat. I hope they have a good restaurant there, that's for sure. <laughs> no, it's so amazing. And like I said, it's almost worth a trip to the United States alone just to see that, you know. Um, I wanted to spend the last five, ten minutes talking to you about your book, uh, your 2004 book, um, Right Stuff, okay. Wrong Sex, America's First Women in the Space Program. You know, a lot of um, drama has been addressing this, um, most particularly the, was, um, the Apple production For All Mankind. And um, that's yes. addressed that quite prominently, especially in the first season. I think that was one of the main uh, topics that it wanted to address. And I'm just wondering, almost 20 years on from your book, do you think that a career in space is necessary? now an equal opportunity? I think the numbers would show that it's not completely equal, but it's gotten much, much better. Um, And I think that the popular understanding of women's history with relationship to spaceflight has been an important part of that. So when I started Right Stuff, Wrong Sex as my doctoral dissertation in the 1990s, the story of women pilots being tested for possible astronaut fitness in this privately done testing in the late 50s um, was really very little known. It was only known within the women's aviation community. And I'm uh, pleased that the good reception of my book and some others, and that this has just become something that people now know and can incorporate into their reimagining of the space program in that um, fictional show, I think is a very good thing. And it's a part of a long story in terms of equal opportunity of um, more women is, as professors, more women working in engineering, that you know, simply those professions evolving in ways that then create more and more people who really have the qualifications to be a part of mission control, to be a part of the engineering teams, to be a part of the astronaut corps. And I think you see with NASA, with the Artemis program right now, looking at a return to the moon, a self-conscious commitment to saying that the uh, crew that lands on the moon with Artemis three will include the first woman to land on the moon and the first person of color. And um, so I think that there's been a kind of long, slow cultural evolution of those things. And honestly, the new book that came out this past fall is called space craze. And it looks at this relationship between how spaceflight has been imagined and how spaceflight has been executed specifically through the objects at the collection. But my main interest in many ways is those changing gender and race relations and the sense of who can do this exploring and how that is depicted in fiction really has big influences then on how things get executed. And the people who are making the fiction are watching what's real and trying to incorporate that. So the uh, producers of For All Mankind Uh, It's not in the book, but they were calling the museum and trying to make sure that these space technologies that they were depicting were done as accurately as possible. And I think that really enriched what they could do in terms of storytelling. So um, 
to come back to your question about equal opportunity, I think the numbers aren't quite there for complete gender parity yet, but I think that you see a far more welcoming environment and one where it's less of uh, the exception, the first, the newest, the second to do a thing, and more that um, people have gotten used to working on international teams of men and women of different races doing work together and that's part of the story we're trying to tell at the museum also is that this is no longer a story of a kind of singular inventor or scientist, uh, but it's really now most of this work in science and technology is being done by these complex, diverse and international teams. I think it should be a natural thing. It shouldn't be even observed as being unusual if there is a person of colour or a woman uh, commanding a, a, a project or commanding a mission. Uh I will have to say, though, I've I've interviewed Samantha Cristofretti and I'm hedging my bets that she's going to be one of the first on the moon, if not the first woman. I don't know what you think about that, Margaret. You probably have somebody else in mind. but uh, I I've think- not gotten to meet her. I'm yeah. envious that you have because I'm a great admirer of her. Um, and she's a person who I also would cite as someone who uh, has been upfront about her Star Trek fandom. Big time. And I love seeing um, that crossover. Yeah, she's a, she, she's a really good communicator as well. I mean, my kids watched her videos um, when she was in the uh, the, the space uh, the space station, and you know she was brilliant at portraying you know daily life up there, and they loved that. And uh, you know, my, mm-hmm. I have two girls, so for them it was just really inspiring. My six year old just wants to be a you know she's wanted to be a scientist since she was two, you know, since she was watching like these things on television cartoons, you know. So um, yeah, we need people like that to inspire everyone, don't we? I think so. And I I think it inspires both boys and girls to get excited about what they're excited about. Oh, for sure. I think most kids nowadays don't even differentiate. If they see an astronaut, they don't expect to address where where that person is from or what color they are or what what gender they are. It just breezes over them. They just see the uniforms and the excitement and they just take it all in, don't they? I think so. Yeah. Can I just ask you one last question? I ask this of all of my guests. Um, Are you reading, watching or listening to anything interesting at the moment? So I am a fan of The Expanse. I'm a fan of For All Mankind. Um, I've just finished watching Star Trek Picard, so um, I'm behind on The Mandalorian, and I need to catch up with that. I've just finished reading The Spare Man by Mary Robinette Cowell, and that's a reimagining in a space setting on a space liner of a murder mystery, much like the Thin Man murders um, that were from Dashiell Hammett stories uh, and famously done in the movies in the 1930s and 40s by William Powell and Myrna Loy. Um, So I greatly enjoyed um, that and I've gotten to talk to her a bit about that book. So um, those would be what I'm listening to and watching right now. That sounds really interesting, actually. I love it when they do stuff like that. They kind of um, give it a kind of a film noir or noir kind of stuff and put it in a kind of a science fiction environment because it becomes a real interesting catalyst, doesn't it? Yes, and she plays a lot with the difference in gravities of the different levels of this space liner on its way uh, to Mars. So I uh, thought the intersection with the actual science and then weaving that into a really, you know, fun uh, murder mystery story was quite good. Mm. I, I mean, they really did a good turnaround with Picard, I thought, because the first two seasons were heavily criticized, but they just nailed it in the last one, didn't they? 
I really enjoyed that. Um, and that's a place where just a lot of fan service, right? They, you can tell that the people yeah. who are making it are themselves fans. Absolutely. And they had a, they had a, you know, a 24th version, 24th century version of the Smithsonian where they, they managed to steal one of the artifacts. <laughs> I've, uh, other than the stealing an artifact part, I loved the homage to museums and the important role that they could play. Um, and I was very pleased to see that, uh, you know, so some uh, descendant of mine may get to work at the Starfleet Museum and that would be wonderful. I, I think what they did was I think the showrunners and scriptwriters just knew that they weren't probably listening to the fans enough because at the end of the day, you know, if you have a, if it's it's kind of like the the real new coke sort of thing if it's really such a success don't try and change it too much and uh, <laughs> you know but they already had a lot of change with discovery and you know and that so i think they really should have stuck to their guns with picard because at the end of the day i, I just think the character is too ingrained in 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 the pop culture of star trek that if you try and give it a bit more edge or try and make it slightly different it, it can have disastrous effects but I, i'm glad they did the third season and they just brought all the other guys back because you know they knew their role to play and they played it superbly yes and i think that's always the balance right is giving people the fans something new uh to see while also kind of paying homage to these characters that you love so um i thought they hit a wonderful balance in that third season yeah uh, that's the other thing you mentioned the mandalorian i watched that with my nine-year-old um she absolutely loves this and i love the contrast because there's a couple of you know there was a couple of scenes where little grogu was in it and the scenes were meant to be tension scenes and you know my daughter's roaring laughing at, at Grogu you know d being Grogu <laughs> and I just thought that you know I said to myself wow they've really nailed it you know they've got like different reactions from different generations and that's perfect because she couldn't sense the amount of tension that was being portrayed in, in the actual scene she just loved the idea that he was hopping from one place to another and doing mini somersaults so you know it was, it was just it's such success I think they've really turned Star Wars around and turned it into something that is a huge now it's a huge cultural thing you know Yes, and as a cultural historian, right, so I'm both appreciating Grogu and also just watching all of the influences from samurai films as well as from westerns and just all of the uh, homage that is being paid in the storytelling and the set making and um, the costume design. So that's been really entertaining to see unfold. There was just one question I just wanted to run by. And I'm wondering, you know, when you look at Star Trek, I think Star Wars seems to have dated better, doesn't it? I mean, they constantly have to redesign Star Trek in some ways, particularly in the uniforms and, and the kind of bridges and all of that. And I, I saw that being portray portrayed in the conversation. My argument to that was that I found that Star Wars was a bit more um, claustrophobic, so you didn't get as much look at the uh, you know the sets and so on, and that probably gave it away a little bit for Star Trek. But um, they've managed to kind of keep the Star Wars style, haven't they, without it looking too dated? Yeah, I think that they're very different universes, and I like the way that the world building in each of the universes has really um, found the kind of through line for themselves. So Star Wars really imagines a very lived-in universe um, that, you know, where everything's a bit worn, a little scuffed, um, and you can imagine that it's been there for a very long time, and... Um, Star Trek has found different ways to kind of reimagine this utopian vision of human beings going into space and bringing the best of ourselves to it um, and different versions of um, how shiny that looks at different times. So um, uh, I 
am a honestly, I think sometimes in fandom there's a tendency to say you have to be a fan of one or the other. I really enjoy both. Yeah, me too. I'll be honest with you, I can't tell the difference. Although I am doing um I'm doing a podcast tomorrow where it's a kind of a mastermind of Star Trek. So I've picked Enterprise, which is probably the most unloved TV show of all of the uh, Star Treks. But I love Captain Archer, you know. Um so yes. I I'm gonna be that's my specialist subject. Apparently you're gonna be asked ten questions now. I haven't got a clue, but I'm gonna give it a go. <laughs> so there you oh, go. That's what I'm doing fun. in my spare time, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> but uh, listen Margaret it's been really wonderful talking to you today I appreciate all the time you've given and uh, can we just uh, double check on where we can find the Smithsonian online is it a is there a website that we can visit is there a particular website address you can find the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum at airandspace.si.edu so it's air and space all as one thing dot si for Smithsonian Institution dot edu yeah, I've got it here. So I'll put that in the show notes as well for everybody to Wonderful. check out. And if somebody wants to follow yourself, I know you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I've just started um, on Instagram. So I have a very young account there. And um, I have a professional account also on Facebook. Great. And don't forget, you should get on to Mastodon. We'd love you there. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds wonderful I think you'd be a god you'd probably have a thousand followers no problem so just just <laughs> don't forget to give that a visit Margaret thanks again and uh, thanks to all of you out there for listening to the episode today I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did my name is Ken Sweeney and I will talk to you very soon so take care y'all bye bye <laughs>